This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Class size was a big sticking point in the recent L.A. teachers' strike, but when is a class too big? Our teachers say, you know it when you see it. Plus, the Covington Catholic School mess. Some say it's a teachable moment. If so, who's getting taught and what? Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? Hi, I teach third grade. Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I teach students at the alternative school, elementary kids. And Bakari Uku'u used to be in the classroom, but uh, what do you do now? Middle school vice principal. So Bakari, Rebecca, Maddie, all three of them teachers or educators in the Kansas City metro area. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet, at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode. It's also a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. Well, the Los Angeles teachers' strike is over, but a central focus of that impasse was about class size. Teachers in L.A. wanted the district to take steps to lower class size. NPR reports that in some secondary classrooms in Los Angeles, teachers face more than 40 students in a single class when average class sizes nationally for comparable grades is between 26 and 28. Many teachers interviewed by various media outlets during the strike called class size their number one issue, more so even than pay for why they were supporting the strike. It's no wonder class size is visceral. You walk into a crowded classroom and automatically it makes you feel on edge, more stressed out, more busy. Bigger classes, research has shown, can negatively impact both the learning of children and the quality of life for the teacher. Still, there's no universal standard for what constitutes the ideal class size and what is the right class size may shift from grade to grade and even from subject to subject. So let's ask our teachers... Class size can be in the eye of the beholder, so I just maybe want to start by asking you all what feels like a big class to you, and have you ever had a, a class that you feel was was too big for what you wanted to do? Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> um, Simple answer. Let's I, move on. Yes. Okay. Next topic. Thank you, Mr. Palmer. Um, I have had classes as large as 27, 28, 29 students, always at an elementary level. And that is, can be really, really difficult just logistically, moving the group from place to place, being able to get tasks done in class, just getting the whole group through the restroom. And you're always managing. Your classroom management becomes what you're doing before anything else, and it just slows down the process of everything that's happening in class. With a lot of kids, um, you guys are talking about 28, 29 in the class, the, the, the premium becomes efficiency, becomes management, like you said, mm-hmm. Rebecca. And it really is a management. You've got to be able to have your eyes and your your ears and just that feel of what's going on in your classroom because you've got groups that go 
under the radar. You've got a kid that's sensitive to something. You've got just crowd and, and noise. You miss and a lot more. You At miss least things. I did. I missed a lot more. I, I agree completely. Things, class things get missed and they have to be repeated and it, it just it slows everything down. Do you guys feel like when you mention class size or even, dare I say, complain about it, do you feel like you are believed um, in how um, seriously your complaints are taken about the effect that it's having on your kids in your classroom? No, I don't. I mean, when I had 29 kids those two years, that was something that I brought up in my own building. And my principal, who I love, shout out to my principal, who's awesome, but she she was supportive of me, but it her comment was like, "We, I can't change this for you, so you have to work with it. When I brought that comment up in district meetings, like for professional development, someone who has since retired, but their comment back was that class size does not mat- matter, that it's not going to matter for kids, that there are studies out there that show that a class of 23 has the same chance of success as a class of 29, that it wasn't an excuse, that me bringing it up was me kind of looking for an excuse for why maybe my growth wasn't where I wanted it to be, and that, in fact, the biggest growth factor for a kid is, you know, drum roll, the teacher, and then she talked about how I was the greatest factor size. And so um, you felt like your complaints about class size were not only dismissed, but also almost it, even it got used turned as like back a cudgel against you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, oh, your kids aren't growing. It's not because of your class size. It's because of you. Uh, so, Bakari, yeah. I, I wonder as a as someone who has experience both in the classroom and now as an administrator, I wonder how you view class size and, and how do you hear um, from teachers about class size? And uh, Maddie does bring up a good point. I mean, there are there are certain limitations to what stu- schools and administrators can do uh, about class right. size because it is, it's about enrollment and about the number of teachers you have in the building. Right. I, I definitely agree. And I, I mean, I hear the complaints. I shared the complaints. But from a building level administrator, there are very limited uh, things that we can do because those students have to be somewhere. And so depending on what course you teach, um, especially at the middle school level, depending on what course you teach and all of those factors come into play. But I definitely think that we should we should try to get class sizes as as low as possible that can be still maintaining fiscal responsibility as well. I'm not a proponent of just um, warehousing kids into classrooms because I definitely think that uh, when you have lower class sizes, you're able to be more intentional and strategic about the way that you support students and you're able to give more to those students than if you have to spread yourself thinner uh, by supporting more students. I think even I think about comparing ourselves to other professions like doctors have a certain amount of hours they can continue to work uh, because of their sanity and because of their mental condition. And then you look at pilots, even pilots have a limited number of hours they can fly. I like that. Uh, when we think about like the safety of our school, uh, of that plane. And so I think that when it comes to teaching, if we can't, if we take a similar approach, there should be a, a max or a cap number that teachers should be uh, forced to serve if they want us to meet our high, to be at our best ability. And I think that to me, that's kind of how I would frame the conversation if I had more influence of it. Now, I don't. I mean, there, and I think the, as an administrator, I'm also more aware now of other priorities that are, are other levers that impact those type of numbers. And again, that goes back to um, the course you teach, where those kids are going, how many uh, FTEs we have in the building. All those things take uh, um, our factors into how we schedule students. And I think an important thing is to include teachers and instructors and educators in the conversation mm-hmm. to, as a team and as a staff, be part of finding those solutions because you can't control the number of kids coming in. You can't control who's in and out. You can't control who needs what in their schedule. Right. But you can control 
how you stack them if somebody's absent or how you schedule visits to parts of the building or how you're going to add an aid if you have Mm -hmm. paraprofessional support in the building, how that's going to be utilized, who gets the most resources, elementary, younger grades or your special needs kids, your English language learners. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you have to bring the staff, the entire team on board to talk about how to allocate a fixed amount. Is that why class size can be so frustrating for teachers in, the, in that a lot of it feels like it's out of your control? Um, like you are assigned a class and the number of kids on your roster is the number of kids in your roster. If two or three kids get added a week into school, you have no control over that. Or if one of your colleagues is gone and five kids from a class that are n- not in your class suddenly are in your class for a day, that's out of your control. Is part of the frustration and the kind of anxiety around class size the fact that you as a teacher don't have a control over it? I think that's it to some extent, yes. I think also we all at the table know all of those things are going to happen. So Mm -hmm. those aren't surprises. You bank on those happening. It's just a matter of when and predicting that. And I think Maddie's point about taking it very personally is is very, very authentic because you compare to your colleagues how they're doing with their group. Are they up? Are they down? Am I down? Do I need more? You know, it really does become a very personal reflection of of the room you're running um, and you don't have control over it. How do you uh, manage a really large class? What are some things you do that might be different in a class of 28 as opposed to a class of 15? Your small groups get bigger. You learn I mean, that's to do like, That's one immediate mm-hmm. thing that I think about that really stinks. Um, it's like when you're doing – you're reading small groups for um, small group instruction. You know, you're talking about a difference between you could have three kids in a group, four kids in a group versus – when you have your lower performing students, all of a sudden that number of kids who they really need your help, it skyrockets up to like eight or 12. Mm-hmm. Is it like, is it uh, viscerally, um, like physiologically more stressful to have more kids in one room? Yeah, they, they absolutely. Don't fit. <laughs> absolutely. Just from the kid point of view, the sights, the smells, the sound, just the yeah. smells, we could talk about that. <laughs> but, smell. you know, seriously, but, 29 fifth graders shoved in a room oh after recess. Oh Kindergartners. On the carpet. You know, in, we, <laughs> the makings of a nightmare. The smell. I, I think yeah, that's our middle school principal way in on the smells <laughs> of a classroom. I, please. But just just the, the kid logistics, that's a lot of trips to the bathroom, that's a lot of interruptions, mm-hmm. that's a lot of voices. But yes, the, the stress on the instructor, your, your level of high alert. It, you're constantly on the the scanning, just the the monitoring, transitions, transitioning. It's you're just on. I mean, it's so just much from the, the not having personal space, like to be literally be walking on kids, like mm-hmm. as you try to navigate and use proximity and circulate throughout your classroom, it makes it a lot more challenging, and that can also cause kids to feel the anxiety and to feel frustrated because they feel like everywhere they turn, someone's bumping into them or touching them or like in their space, and so. It, no one it's just uncomfortable to be in a crowded space i think maybe one of the reasons that the los angeles teachers strike resonated for teachers beyond los angeles um at least i think there's a disconnect between uh, i think the impact on the on your quality of life as a teacher that class size can have versus often the seriousness with which concerns about class size are taken um both mm-hmm. within education and just beyond in a, in, a, in a general school, I mean, would you agree with that, that there's a disconnect between how much it affects your daily life and how serious the concern is taken? UTLA had been dealing with the issue for year after year after year, and so many of their resources were being drained to other things, especially the, the growing charter and, and privatization there. So they, they saw their resources even 
becoming smaller and smaller with the same their their enrollment didn't increase. It was just a reduction in resources um, because their enrollment stayed relatively stable. But um, you know they had so many factors playing into their burgeoning class sizes. But um, you know it's so much more than than just again the the quality of life. It's it's being able to cover set amount of material in set amount of time at the end of the day it is more difficult with more bodies although i would i would say that the quality of life is a very important factor especially as we think about like just retaining teachers and that if we have multiple levers that we feel like we're not being heard and not feeling valued, then that makes the person not want to maintain or stay in this profession. And so if I feel like I'm continuing to say, hey, I have too many kids in my room, I can't actually be effective, then that starts to really impact the way job satisfaction. And if I, if I don't feel satisfied in the role, then I'm likely not going to stay there, especially if I don't feel like I'm getting the support to help me move forward. And so I think to Rebecca's point, like when we are having those conversations around my class is too large, how are administrators... Uh, and district leaders helping to solve that by providing additional aids and providing additional spaces or providing larger spaces for those classes to to convene. I think there's there are, are ways that we can address it that doesn't necessarily mean reducing the, the mm. size of the classroom, but reducing the student-to-teacher ratio or student-to-adult ratio in the room, increasing the, the size of the room or the space for the, uh, the class to convene. So I think there are there are other levers that can help, um, but when you just when it just goes unignored or what it feels like to be, uh, what it seems like as it is being ignored, is where it really becomes a problem. So it's not just that it's out of our control, but it's like when we do speak up, we're not being heard. And class size is often a numbers game. It's a financial game as well. Um, if you had to pick, would you take lower class sizes or um, keeping your pay level or raising your pay? Can I reject the question first? <laughs> because, because it's never just class size or compensation. What if it was, it's, though? It, but it never is. It's Is it my class size <laughs> and I don't have a librarian? Or is it, you know, is it the other things that come with that? Is it my class size and then the do I have a counselor, one for the building? I mean, yeah. You're saying you don't want to pick between the two. I don't think you can yet. I think you have to look at the totality of I don't where do pick. the res- resources go. But I will tell you, and I, I, I have no problem. I mean, I've negotiated this a lot at the, our, at my district negotiating table, and teachers will, given given the choice, find a compromise there. They'll do a lower class size, but not as low as they want, for a compensation package that allows them to stay in this profession. Um, because to Bakari's point, at a certain point, you have to be able to sustain your own family and your own mm-hmm. career, and that goes into the pension conversation we've had. It goes into your future. It goes into your investment you're making for your master's degree or a higher degree. You know, you have you have to balance that. And so there's usually a compromise found there rather than an either and or. Maddie, you're thinking. I am thinking. You look like you're thinking. I I think that you that you shouldn't have to pick, which I, I we all agree with. And I think that a lot of the schools that are struggling the most with this question are also the schools that are highest need and lowest funded. Mm. You know, like if you Preach. are having a class size of 40 kids, you aren't teaching at, like there are schools that can get that sweet spot of 13 to 18 kids. Like that's the sweet spot in public education. You know, you have a class size less than 18, like right on, great. And so when you're getting class sizes bigger than 18, chances are you probably teach at a school that could be Title I. 
You might teach at a school that has really big businesses in the district, like, boundaries, and maybe that big business isn't paying all their taxes to you. Wink, wink, Hmm. looking at you, Cerner. Like, stuff like that. Or you are probably teaching at a school that is mostly non-white. Or you might be teaching at a school that has really transient staff members. Like, you have all of these other problems that you're facing at the exact same time. So you're saying that the the big class sizes are only are, are compounding yes. the issues within the class. And there are teachers who teach at public districts who don't have large class sizes and they don't have any of the other problems or obstacles or things that that the people with the large class sizes have to deal with, too. Like... So a class. So I don't of, think you should have to pick. I think you sh- you should be able to fix the funding so that we can, can all have eighteen and less class sizes. A class of forty then can feel like a class of forty-five well, or fifty. Think of it like a wagon metaphor, because like whenever people are like, oh, at some point it doesn't matter. Yeah, I agree with you. Like if each teacher has a wagon and in your wagon is your class size, you can feel the difference between thirteen and eighteen. Like another kid gets in and you go, oh, that I like I can feel that. But at some point. They're right. Your class size doesn't matter because you can't feel the difference between 25 and 28 kids. I couldn't. Like my fifth grade year, I started the year with 25 kids and I ended with 29. And I really couldn't. It felt the same the whole year. So you need to get past 18 for your class size to start making a difference. At some point, your wagon's axle is going to break. Well, it's going to break and you're going to quit and, you know, you pick it up and you say, well, how many kids are in there? I don't know. Maybe 29, 30, 25-ish. I don't like you can't tell. You can't discern it, you know? Well, I grew up in Independence, so I like the Oregon Trail references going on here. That's nice. Because now I'm dying to ask the question. We've talked about that before. How many of the 29 that you ended with did you start with? Yeah. Because I'm willing to bet over I have a the new course of that on Friday year, coming. I'm, I'm gonna. I bet by the yeah. course of that year, you had upwards of 40 kids in and out of that wagon. That it's a different 29. Yeah, absolutely. Group, yeah. My grade level this year, this within the last one week, we've had one, two, eight new students come <laughs> to our grade. Because it's within January. That's what week. happens at the yeah. end of January. Yeah. Well, that's not, yeah. I mean, and that kind of problem is not, isn't, isn't even captured by the raw number of kids that are in your classroom. Right. You're Absolutely. talking about the, the kids cycling in and out. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Just how primed our country is for a fight became abundantly clear recently with the whole mess over the Covington Catholic School boys. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I envy you. I won't rehash the details or alleged details of the confrontation on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. There's been enough think pieces written about the Fuhrer to fill a school library. I will say Caitlin Flanagan's summation of events published recently in The Atlantic is the most concise, comprehensive, and fair-minded that I've read. But the questions this crisis, manufactured as it may be, raises for teachers cut to the heart of our profession. Questions like, how do we prepare young people for the complex world they're about to enter? How do we balance the competing desires to protect them from potentially awkward and even dangerous encounters while also holding them accountable for their own questionable decisions? And how can we ourselves as educators model values like empathy and tolerance? 
But I want to start the conversation here. The phrase that I've seen a lot in the days since this occurred, analyzing what it means, is the phrase teachable moment. Now, that's a phrase teachers use a lot and are familiar with, especially when kids mess up. Uh, But to you, is this a teachable moment? Why or why not? I don't think it is. I think a teachable time is when behavior changes or learning occurs. Um, And I think there were so many moments of this encounter over a long period of time that other other interventions could have occurred that that did not occur, that we've seen this happen over and over and over again. Um, It's not teaching. It's it's becoming habitual. It's it's you know, it's institutional. It's not it's not a a teachable moment. So many things broke down before this happened. And um, I don't think it is teachable. I would say I think th- it can be processed. Mm-hmm. I think we have the conversation, but I, I, I don't know people walk away from this feeling differently because people have run to their corners to defend or learn, their... Or learned yeah, anything. Or learned, right, right. I think mm. people are defending their positions now, um, and everybody's so firmly entrenched. I would say that this qualifies more as a missed opportunity than anything, um, because a missed opportunity in my mind, in this case, that it could have been a teachable moment. Um, But because, as Rebecca was just saying, that the way that people have reacted to this, it was not in the spirit of learning, in the spirit of growth and progress. It was a spirit of defend myself and uh, rally my corner and rally my troops to defend my perspective. And I think that that's why it's a missed opportunity, because there are so many parallels to this moment throughout a history particularly around like the civil rights movement and such, and that we see these the same type of image over and over again that I feel like we exist in a time where we do have more people who are willing to engage and are aware enough to engage in the conversation, but this conversation has already been derailed by people taking sides. Mm. Was there anything in this, whether you watched the videos or watched a portion of the videos or, or read reactions or read coverage of this, was there anything about this that gave you a distinct emotional reaction as a teacher, um, watching um, a group of young people involved in a pretty chaotic confrontation with two very different other groups of people, um, but of course the young people, the 15 and 16-year-olds at the heart of the, con- uh, the confrontation. Did anything give you a, a reaction as a teacher? I appreciate that perspective because I've struggled with my teacher reaction to it and my personal reaction to it, and usually those are the same for me. Mm-hmm. I usually don't have those two hats on. But as a teacher, I don't understand how this group trip, field trip, was being managed. It felt very anxiety. I don't know where their adults felt. were. I don't know where the supervision was. <laughs> this was a group of teenagers who had been unsupervised at a public place for way too long. They were like the, hot and the primed up off were their in march. Of, of it. I just don't understand how at the end of a, a really volatile emotional experience of going to a national march that they were escalated about anyway, to then be unsupervised and undirected for an extended period of time, that's just ask, That's just bad management. Yeah, and I, it makes me wonder what type of prep took place prior to this to them engaging in this field trip because there should be like some prior learning taking place that preps them and for the experience of the field trip 
Um, I think for me, part of that conversation in this type of environment would have been, here's how we're going to behave and here's how we're going to manage ourselves. That, like, let them know that there are going to be groups there who don't agree with our opinion. We're not going to engage. We're not going to try to debate anyone because our goal here is not to convince others to believe our what we believe. Our goal is simply here to share our beliefs and to, to rally with our, our folks. And it, 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 just to be clear, they, were, mm-hmm. they had gone to Washington for the annual March for Life, which is a thing a lot of— um, a lot of Catholic schools do organize field trips. So mm-hmm. as Rebecca, to your point, they were there at a, an event that was already very emotionally charged. Um, but Bakari, sorry to interrupt. No, and and so I think that all, all the more reason why it's so important, especially these teenage boys, to be very intentional about how you prep them for engaging with people who disagree with you in this moment and to not engage because this is not the platform. And this, in that moment, you're not going to be changing minds and hearts. And that's not the purpose, that we, you're there to just be in solidarity with the belief that you possess. And I, and I think as we continue to focus on our teacher reactions right. to it, I mean, just a, ver- a wide variety of behaviors that these mm-hmm. young men exhibited as teachers, we would not have permitted mm-hmm. given the adequate amount of supervision and prep. Yeah. You know, shirts off, harassing the girls, the the singing, the chanting, the, the approaching, all any of any number of those things. We would have and honestly, if the put rule, the kibosh yeah. on first. If the rule yeah. is do not engage... Mm-hmm. Even if you're just standing within close proximity, that's engaging. So that's their first level of accountability. You know, like whenever the problem, you know, like. Right. And I, th- I think we can also fail to mention that these groups of boys were wearing Make America Great hats, hats and, and uh, Make America Great Again hats. Mm-hmm. And I think that that in and of itself is problematic. And I think yeah. we know that that is, is largely a symbol um, and a a dog whistle to a certain type of individual. And I think that, I mean, I would compare, and I've seen other people make this comparison on social media, that when like a Trayvon Martin and a Michael Brown were shot and killed, we gave warnings to black parents and not let their black boys walk around in hoodies because it indicated they were thugs. <laughs> so the symbolism of a hood is like that it implies that all these black boys are thugs, whereas I think we now exist in a time where these MAGA hats are very intentional and that they only a certain demographic of people continue to wear them in, in, in a way and, and display certain behaviors while wearing this um, item in a way that indicates that it's clearly some type of bias or racist or prejudice toward a particular group. And in this case, these boys are literally shouting, build that wall and doing tomahawk ch- uh, actions toward this Native American. And I think that we can't fail to mention that and like and and see those parallels. What it made me think of is when we were trying to integrate schools and it made me think of like the Little Rock Nine and they're trying to enter these schools and you see all these teenage um, white kids screaming toward these kids who are simply trying to get access to a quality education. And so it really harkened when I think about the parallels or even like the lunch counters, like I think about the parallels of that imagery and those actions, I think that's why it's a missed opportunity that we are in 2019 and we're still seeing things that you can juxtapose to a 1950s that, that just shows where we are as a society and where we where we could be. And I'm glad you brought us around to the substance of it. Sorry, Kyle, to jump in, but we've talked a lot about the management of it. Right. Mm-hmm. But the actual substance of what these entitled, mm-hmm. privileged, unreined in white students, their behavior, it's just inexcusable. And the visuals and the parallels and any number of of places that went wrong, the substance of what they were doing once they had been allowed to do it. I've heard uh, heard that a lot in in the the days since this occurred and blew up. Um, 
the the kind of um, comparisons and juxtapositions that Bakari was making, the way um, these white boys have been treated um, in the public sphere, in the media, compared to um, how black and brown students have been treated in the past for um, offenses that are totally different or alleged offenses that are totally different, um, but get treated very differently in the media. And and I, I guess a, a kind of difficult question that I've been struggling with is how do we acknowledge that, um, the truth of that, but also still try to, I guess, as educators and people who are trying to um, make the world a better place, <laughs> um, uh, Look at these white boys and 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 try to have empathy and 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 try to say you can learn from this. I don't know if I I don't know if I articulated that well, but saying that they can learn from it, I guess is I've been struggling with that too. And when in prior conversations that I've had about this topic, I think that that's what I wanted to focus on. And thinking and reflecting about it more for me, I think that the message I've kind of walked away with is for us to ask that question, you have to be certain that someone's going to do it. Like someone like how do we have empathy for these kids and how do we say you can learn from this? Well, if it's a kid that is supposing that there is an adult figure in their life that is going to impart the lesson. Here's a better you know way. What I mean? Yeah, here's what better, it also assumes yeah. though is that they are even willing to learn from right. it, right? And I think that based on the reaction that I've seen so far, it doesn't seem like they are willing to learn. In the previous conversation, I heard someone once say that in order for it to be a teachable moment, you have to be willing to be teachable, right? And I don't think I have not seen where that is indicative and in are evidenced in this particular case. You know, in the in the days after the video of the confrontation went viral, the Covington School in Northern Kentucky received bomb threats. School had to actually. Um, be canceled for a few days. The website was taken down. The individual students and their families involved um, reportedly have been receiving death threats online. I, so maybe a better way to articulate the question I was trying to ask, does having um, empathy for these white boys at the center of this controversy necessarily preclude giving them accountability for their actions on that day? Of course. I mean, I don't think any kid mm-hmm. should be subjected to those type of... I don't think that's that was a reasonable response to their behavior by any means. I don't think that was teachable. I don't think that, was, that helped them learn. I don't think that that was a reasonable response. So I can't have empathy toward that end that I don't think anyone who makes a mistake should get get that type of response. And no I, th- one. I think we need to talk about the responses because it wasn't just the threats on the school or the follow-up you know the the it was it was the viralness of the video it was the reaction of the media it was the backlash from all i mean i think right and and it's it's fascinating that we're still struggling to articulate it. Well, I, but I do want but, us to be clear. Well, I want to be yeah. clear that I don't feel like these students are victims. Like I don't think that I think there's we can have empathy with the with with still understanding who the victim is in this circumstance and it definitely is not the students who were chanting disparities and uh slurs toward another individual. And so I think that, yes, it's unfortunate those things happened, but that does not warrant them being invited to a White House. Like, this, like that doesn't teach them. And I feel like right now we've started to shift the, the narrative and, like, say that these are the victims and now we want to celebrate and, and, and hold them up, place them on this pedestal. When in actuality, no, they still need to be taught. Like, they still need to have consequences for those choices. Now, what that consequence is, I'm not really sure, but I definitely think there needs to be um, more of a focus on what caused this snowball to start to take place. And I, I is, agree completely. Is it like I, a yeah. teacher metaphor or a teacher's, um, like a, 
why am I forgetting the figurative language word that I want to use? It's not the wagon. <laughs> no, <laughs> but what's the name of that type of figurative language where you talk about it and it's not it, but it's a wagon? Just help like, me. I'm like so metaphor? sorry to take a a sim- or a simile? I don't know. A simile? Like a I'm sorry. Analogy. Analogy. Thank you. Sorry. Um, field trip today. Brain got fried. Okay, so like an analogy would be like you're on the playground. A kid runs up to you. The kid's crying because they got slapped in the face. You do some investigating, and you realize that this kid who got massively slapped in the face. There's a mark on his hand. The reason that they got slapped in the face was because they are standing at the bottom of the slide kicking people. So what do you do in that situation? That, I think that that's, that's how you break it down. So what would, you yeah? do as a, what would you do as a teacher in that situation? You make the kid who got slapped apologize. And you talk to that kid and you say, I know what it has, I know what it feels like to get slapped in the face because I have also made dumbass decisions and had consequences from those dumbass decisions. It doesn't feel good. It feels embarrassing. It, it, it feels bad. And I'm, I'm sorry because no one likes to get slapped. However, comma, why did you get slapped? And then you wait. You wait them out. And if they don't answer you, you don't let them sit back. I've done this before. I don't let them go back to their regular seat. I don't give them a cookie. I don't. I give them tissues if they're crying, but I don't go over and pat their back and, and go back. I apologize and I empathize once for the slap in the face. And I'm like, that stinks. That should not have happened to you. I will talk to that student. Done. And then I don't even talk about it again, to be honest. I kind of brush past the fact that they got slapped and the entire rest of the conversation is putting the onus of responsibility on them. And I'm like, why did this happen? What do you have to say for yourself? You need to write an apology note. Who, what, who slapped you in the face really? Why did that just happen to you? And then you let them dig that out and figure it all out. And then when you call home, you make sure that you don't really emphasize the fact that I, it, for parents, they always want to talk about their kid and why their kid got slapped. And for me, I'm like, you know, I've dealt with the other kids, and I don't really share the, consequ- mm-hmm. the consequence right. with the harasser. I'm like, you know, well, yeah, you don't, I find you don't that, get to— I find that a pretty um, boom. pungent analogy for this situation. Literally, literally just came up with it. <laughs> I would say if we apply that to the Covington situation at this point, the kid who's been slapped in the face has now been— He's at the nurse. He's got an ice <laughs> yeah. pack. He's got a Interviewed popsicle. by the principal in front of the whole school parent, about why he is the victim. His parent is pulling him out of school early, <laughs> he's and he's going, to, council president he's going to worlds of fun. <laughs> I think that that's it. And, you're and that's like, why this isn't a teachable moment. Well, and you forget, I think that like even I fell victim to that where I forgot why that kid got slapped. And I wanted to talk about the slap. And now it's too late. Well, for for him, probably. For me, I just figured it out today, which is still kind of bullshit that it took me that long. It's not kind of bullshit. It is bullshit that it took me that long. So maybe maybe it's a teachable moment for individual Maddie Burke campers across America. I hope so. Come on, Burke campers across America. <laughs> like thinking about it being a teachable moment. I think that Covington still has an opportunity 
to change and to do differently because I'm sure they're going to go to the march again. And I think that they have to be more intentional about how do they prep the next class of kids who participate in that and what types of conversation are they now having about why people responded in the way they responded. Well, you know, I, some have also suggested that Covington School should add more, you know, material about indigenous people to its curriculum, it. incorporate mm-hmm. field trips and service projects that, you know, deliberately involve marginalized groups of people. I and mean, what do you think about ideas like that? That's exactly where I was going, that there has to be I mean, education is not supposed to be this indoctrination of what I believe in and what has always been taught. It has to be this giving you enough information to make a decision on your own, and that requires you to have multiple perspectives at the table. So if we only feed students one narrative, we're short-sighting them, and we're, 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 giving them, we're not giving them um, – we're not doing their due, our due diligence by providing them a quality education for only giving them a one-sided opinion and a one-sided narrative of what the world is. And if they go – they went into this thinking a very one-sided way – I think what Covington has and what schools across America, uh, districts across America has the opportunity to realize the importance of having multiple perspectives in your curriculum and having um, multicultural uh, curriculum so that you have an understanding, at least some foundational understanding that the world does not revolve around you and the people who look like you. Well, that's a good place to stop. (laughs) Sorry. No, that's... (laughs) No, it was good. Uh, Before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Denver teachers have voted to approve a strike. Talks between union leaders and the Denver Public Schools stalled earlier this month, and the teachers' contract with the district has now expired. Negotiations are hung up in part over the union's demand that more money go to teachers' base salaries instead of incentive pay. The district has asked the state of Colorado to intervene. The teachers' union, in turn, has requested the state stay out of the dispute. In New York state law... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Taking notes, Rebecca. Uh, Paying attention. Virginia had their rally yesterday. Yeah, it's not ending. It's, it's not it's, ending. It's not ending. This is something people need to pay attention to. In New York State, lawmakers recently passed a bill that scraps the mandated use of some state tests linked to teacher evaluations. The move reverses a policy put in place under Governor Andrew Cuomo that tied teacher evaluations closely to student test scores in grades 3 through 8. That was a big factor in a parent-led backlash to standardized testing in New York over the last few years that saw thousands of families opt their kids out of state tests. And an environmentally conscious teenager made a startling discovery off the coast of Northern California. In 2017, Alex Weber, then a junior at Carmel High School in Carmel, went snorkeling in Monterey Bay, beautiful Monterey Bay, I've been there, and discovered thousands of golf balls on the ocean bed, hit there from the famed seaside Pebble Beach Golf Club. After a months-long retrieval operation involving her father and a friend, Alex ended up pulling out 40,000 golf balls from the Pacific Ocean. She used the discovery to convince Pebble Beach to start addressing the problem and is also now working with a local ocean sanctuary on cleaning up fragments of plastic from the balls that eroded into the ocean. There you go. 
some of the headlines that caught our eye recently. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Maddie, what are your kids into? Snow days. And cold days. And cold days. Tomorrow we have off because of cold temperatures. You already know that you have it off. Yep. I knew hours ago. All three of you. All mm-hmm. three of us. What are you doing tomorrow? Sorry, Kyle, I'm Mr. working. <laughs> what time? So Journalists don't get snow days, and neither do neither administrators. Do. <laughs> I'm saying neither do administrators. Oh yeah. You. Sorry, Bakari. So did your did your kids know today that they were going to get tomorrow off? Um, I didn't talk about no. it. I didn't talk about it, but I had a club after school today, and I told them before they went out to their cars, and it was. But how did they bedlock? <laughs> they were like, "Oh my gosh!" and they ran out of the. Doors and it was great. Yeah. See you Thursday. (laughs) Rebecca, what are your kids into? It's science fair time. Everybody's doing science fair. So thank you to everybody that continues to make trifold cardboard backdrops and houseplants in closets and dropping (laughs) things in fake lava volcanoes and all the parents that are forcing this to happen. Thank you for this ritual. It's important. And all those teachers who are going to get pressed into service to evaluate them and award the ribbons. It's a big deal. And they're just it's there's something very satisfying to have it happen year after year, even though it's the fifth grade's worst nightmare. <laughs> Science uh, fairs, I think, keep the makers of puffy trifold. Those um, they're they're never used for anything. Display else, boards in but, business. But we've all we've got them. They're propped up. They're labeled. That's so true. So many different ways to spell Hypothesis. But oh my you, gosh! You, you would figure in our you would figure in our digital age they would have we would have moved past the puffy no, tri-board dis- they tri board trifold display they board. They are absolutely hand it's lettered. It's not a science project if it's not hand. They are hand lettered and crooked and scribbled on and homemade and I love it. Bukhari, what are your kids into? My kids are into well, many of my kids are into testing. We are actually in testing season right oh, now. Already, come on! Um, wow. State testing for um, access testing, which is for basically like our state assessment for ELL students. So English English language learners are currently doing their state assessment. I'm checking the date. It's January still. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Maddie Burkemper, Rebecca McIntosh, and Bakari Uku'u. Put in a lot of extra work this week, I will say. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com, and sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Until next time, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. (laughs) 